The Economist. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Lane Green, Deputy Books and Arts Editor, and on the menu this week, Indian politicians face off on Twitter, the trains with energy as freight, and a scramble for passports in Ireland. But first, the politics of anger was our cover line this week, looking beyond Brexit to the wider trends that fostered it. We asked if a brewing crisis of broad liberalism and the prosperity that comes with it might be starting to unravel. At the core, our leader argued, was anger. Many Brexiteers built their campaign on optimism, but what secured their victory was anger. Anger stirred up a winning turnout in the depressed, down-at-heel cities of England. Anger at immigration, globalisation, social liberalism and even feminism, polling shows, translated into a vote to reject the EU. And this anger is by no means confined to Britain. Across Western democracies, from the America of Donald Trump to the France of Marine Le Pen, large numbers of people are enraged. Our leader laid out proposals for addressing the causes of rage at the world order. Liberals also need to restore social mobility and ensure that economic growth translates into rising wages. Most of all, the West needs an education system that works for everyone, of whatever social background and whatever age. And we end on an inspiring note from the former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Never take history for granted, she said. Never let up. For Liberals today, that must be the rallying cry. Clearly all this global anger has us really riled. But we should calm down on our way to the next story. While one world order is on the wane, Ireland may be threatened by a return to the past that many would like to forget, as an article in our Europe section laid out. The roadblocks and army watchtowers that once dotted the 499-kilometre that's 310-mile border, dividing Northern Ireland from the Irish Republic, were among the most hated symbols of its long-running civil conflict. But since the Good Friday Peace Agreement of 1998, crossing that border has come to mean nothing more than changing currency and remembering that road signs switch between miles and kilometres. The two societies have intertwined, making the question of whether Ireland should eventually be reunited seem less important and helping to forestall any return to violence. This intertwining has been enormously beneficial. With Britain leaving the European Union, it could be severely disrupted. The border may return, even more forbidding than before. If migration to Britain is to be controlled, as the Leave campaign promised, not just security and customs checkpoints will be needed, but passport and visa controls. Luckily for many in the North, Irish citizenship is still an option, and many are taking up passports. As Britain and Ireland, North and South, grew closer within the EU, few bothered to apply. That so many are now scrambling to do so is an ominous sign of divisions to come. So ominous notes abound, but all is not lost, provided you can drum up enough Irish ancestors to make a case for a passport. And if your appetite for further coverage of the fallout from Brexit is still hearty, you can find more on our website, economist.com. Now, as we move on to our Asia section, India's ruling party has been taking to Twitter to get out its message. 
Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister, takes social media seriously and wants members of his Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, to do the same. He even commissioned a report on the social media activities of MPs and ministers. The implication that the BJP's best online promoters would themselves be promoted was clear. So were the results. Anodyne obsequiousness. But there is one notable Indian politician who has chosen subversion over sycophancy for his 140 characters. Subramanian Swami, a 76-year-old BJP activist who in April was handed one of the party's upper house seats, has bucked the trend. He spent weeks tweeting aspersions on the integrity, competence and patriotism of India's respected central bank chief, Raghuram Rajan. Mr Swami then turned his digital guns on Arun Jaitley, the finance minister, who is one of Mr Modi's most trusted advisers. After months of silence on Mr Swami's behaviour, Prime Minister Modi has finally spoken out, warning on the dangers of publicity stunts. And the reaction online? Predictably, Mr Modi's Twitter feed erupted with praise for his performance. Never seen such a brilliant interview by an Indian PM, so knowledgeable and aware of even minutest details gushed one Siddhartha Verma. Mr. Swami's response was uncharacteristically philosophical. The world is in general equilibrium. A small change in one parameter affects changes in all variables. So Krishna advised. Wise words indeed, although Mr. Swami should perhaps seek out a catchy hashtag to go with it, or perhaps an emoji of an advising Krishna. But while India's political elite trades barbs over Twitter, bigger problems are looming for big business in Europe, as our article argued that Europe's largest corporations are going from clout to rout. It feels indelicate to raise it at a time like this, but European business has a bigger problem on its plate than Britain's decision to leave the European Union. What? Unthinkable. After a decade of stagnation, the continent's firms have suffered an alarming decline in their global clout. Of the 50 most valuable firms in the world, only seven are European, compared with 17 in 2006. Europe is fast falling behind, with China rising, but America now dominating the field when it comes to massive companies. A slide, in part, fueled by Europe's failure to capitalise on the technology boom. Europe has gone backwards in technology. It hasn't created any firms of the scale of Facebook or Google. And with fewer major companies, Europe is less likely to be at the forefront of innovation. Investment in research and development, or R&D, tends to be disproportionately done by multinational firms. Of the world's top 50 R&D spenders, only 13 are European, down from 19 in 2006, while 26 are American. So, our article argued, European companies should be allowed to undertake more mergers, which would be preferable to the worst-case scenario. That Europe's corporate weakness will eventually lead to a defensive protectionism, and the continent will close itself off from the outside world. Defensive protectionism and closing yourself off from the outside world? Now, where have I heard that before? Now, as we open ourselves up to the finance section, we're off to the end of Benelux, where there's big trouble in Little Luxembourg. June 29th was Judgment Day in a case that has changed the face of corporate tax planning. Three men have been tried in Luxembourg for releasing secret documents relating to sweetheart tax deals between Luxembourg and multinationals. According to the defendants, their exposure of dodgy tax practices was in the public interest. According to Luxembourg, 
the deals were both legal and unremarkable. Two out of the three were convicted, but it's not entirely a defeat for tax transparency. Nevertheless, firms acknowledge that enthusiastic tax avoidance is becoming harder to get away with. Cozy deals with the taxman are under more scrutiny. Convicted criminals, though two of them may now be, the LuxLeaks three deserve praise for their role in bringing that about. Ah, convicted criminals. They never get the credit they deserve. Now, the England team had more than a little difficulty with their energy levels in a disastrous game this week. So they might seek inspiration from the science section, where an article explored the potential of trains as stores of energy. The easiest way to squirrel electricity away in times of plenty for use when it is scarce is to pump water uphill with it. And one firm wants to use trains to do it. The firm in question calls itself ARIES, which stands for Advanced Rail Energy Storage. Like Sisyphus in Greek mythology, it would take rocks to the top of a hill. The rocks stand in for the water in a pumped storage system, and the motors that drive the train act like the electrical kit of a pumped storage turbine as generators when they run in reverse as the train rolls backwards downhill, pulled by gravity. With a prototype tested and plans in place for a facility in Nevada, Ares has a valuable niche. At the moment, Ares' plan is simply to draw power from the grid when it is cheap and sell it back when it is expensive. But the logical end of the line for such a railway is as a load balancer for local solar power stations. So, as it turns out, the nursery rhyme about the grand old Duke of York was actually an homage to a pioneer in energy storage. And it's a case of moving from scientific innovation to a very different kind of innovator as we turn to the passing of a great in Pakistani music that we mourned in our obituary. Amjad Sabri, Pakistan's favorite Qawwali singer, was killed on June 22nd, aged 45. Sabri came from a long line of great singers and grew up surrounded by music. The Sabri house in Karachi was full of the wheeze of portable harmoniums, the patter of drums, and the joyous, repetitive mantras of Qawwali, the songs of the millions of South Asian followers of the mystical Sufi strain of Islam. He quickly became known for his ebullient style. Indeed, his whole performance radiated calm, confidence and joy. A big, burly man with luxuriant long black hair, brown caracal hat, one small gold earring and many chunky rings, effortlessly smiling and gesticulating through his glorious baritone singing. He became a massive and versatile star. He sang all over South Asia and took Kawali to Europe and America, where he performed backed by saxophones. Bollywood invited him and he was happy to sing on film. But on June 22nd... He was on his way to do another morning show when two men on a motorcycle riddled his car with bullets. The Pakistani Taliban declared that they had done it, killing a blasphemer. But the legacy of his family is not over. His 12-year-old son defiantly performed his Karam Mangtahan, I ask for kindness, Lord, in tribute to him. For the greatest message of Sufi Islam to the world is the unshakable primacy of music, peace and love. Well, peace and love are always good notes to end on, musical or otherwise. So that was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback via email, radio at economist.com, or on Twitter, at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.